0: On this week's Game of Thrones Weekly Podcast, we are talking about the broken man, which brought back the Hound, introduced a 10-year-old scene stealer, gave Arya some big trouble, and had a lot of very tense meetings. I'm James Hibbard, and I'm here with Darren Franich. Darren, what's your headline here?
1: If you'd told me on Friday that the Hound was coming back... And yet the most popular and most discussed thing in the episode is a heretofore unseen 10-year-old character. I would have been a little suspicious, but I have to admit, now I am all about Liana Mormont the way that everybody else seems to be. Uh, That was a great introduction of a character right into the middle of an episode that seemed to be going in a lot of different directions. One of the things that I like so much about the Lieta Mormont scene, I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week, but, you know, I, I'm a big fan of when the show just shows you some of the other noble houses in the realm. And so I loved how this week's John and Sansa story arc was just them sort of going on this, uh, you know, like Che Guevara tour around the north trying to drum up support for their... Uh, counter-revolution against the Boltons. But it was also great because the Liana Mormont scene, I, you know, halfway through, I realized, okay, like, not only is this scene great because, you know, this character is so interesting and, you know, she seems to be much more clear-eyed about the situation than a lot of the other characters that we've met so far. I also loved how, I mean, this is the third Mormont that we have met And, you know, none of the Mormonts have we ever seen together on screen. But, you know, this is someone who's, you know, related to the Lord Commander, who's related to Sir Jorah Mormont. So there was just, you know, a lot of great ambient history in that scene, along with the fact that the 10-year-old Disney kid looking actress was just so commanding on screen.
0: Yeah, you sort of get the feeling that uh, the Mormonts have had their own, like, Stark-like, Drama going on in their house where everyone's gone to these different corners of the world and been disrupted by war. But, uh, you know, unlike the Starks, they're they're minor characters. And um, and I think that that was part of what the episode did that 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 sort of uh, tour of these uh, lesser known houses. It sure showed the impact of the past few seasons on everybody else. And you know, I made a comparison in the uh, in the recap to uh, Captain America, Civil War and Batman versus Superman, which both, you know, both movies sort took a step back and explored the idea of well what about the people in the high-rise buildings you know that that are impacted by by the decisions and battles of these superheroes and thrones did that in, in their way too here you know touching on how these houses have just been ripped apart and are now very reluctant to fight anymore
1: Yeah, except that, you know, unlike those movies, Game of Thrones actually seems like, you know, it's not going to just ask those questions in the first ten minutes and then forget about them. Um, Yeah, like, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed about this tour they were taking, and I think that um, in your interview with him, Brian Cogman, who wrote last night's episode, mentioned that, you know, with the Jon and Sansa arc, the show was kind of having some fun with how time was passing because clearly, you know, them kind of going all around the North would have taken, you know, two weeks or three weeks or something. But it was great that, you know, we see on one hand how there are some houses that are just ravaged but in the case of the Mormonts they do ultimately stick with the Starks versus you know other houses that have been ravaged beyond all belief to the point where they're just like I'm sorry like I, I cannot in any way follow you a- anymore I mean we've been in a state of perpetual war for years now within, within the show's time and I mean, you know this was a great episode for sort of like hushed gravel voiced guys having conversations with, with people but you know the, the characters. Richter, um, in the house up north, who who just told the assembled sort of Stark? Uh, remnants. There's just no way that I can possibly follow you. Your family has ruined my family. I, I just found that interesting because it-, it gets into what I think is so great about how this story is told. It's not just about like, here's a war that happens between different forces and somebody wins. It's like, here's a war that happens and that war is essentially a natural disaster that leaves all of Westeros just, you know, broken one way or another.
0: Yeah. And because there's nothing that The uh, Lord Glover says there that you can really argue with all that much. I mean, it's like, okay, uh, he's not going along with our heroes, but at the same time, what he's saying, his position is entirely understandable and sympathetic in its own way. And I thought it was interesting that with Leanna, they used the Sir Davos, um, who really scored points with her by a opening himself up to her and being being a bit candid about his own past and being uh, you know showing that he is he has a relatable history too. And also brought up the the boogeyman of the Night King and the idea that there's this boogeyman under under the bed. There's this monster in the closet that's going to come out and get you. <laughs> and You know, perhaps more than a cynical adult, like that one worked. It's like, oh, okay, there are scary monsters coming, and so therefore I will join you.
1: I'm glad you bring that up. We need to talk about this whole Night's King thing, because last week, uh, as I so often am in my spare time, I was in a toy store. I saw a toy for Game of Thrones for the character who I had been calling the Night's King, On the packaging, they had it labeled Night King. No apostrophe S. No apostrophe S, James. And it made me realize that on the show this season, which I think this season, I believe, is the first time that character has been named on the show. We've sort of known about him, and HBO Materials have referred to him before. But this, I think, is the first season characters have been saying his name out loud. And I think they've been saying his name as Night King, as you just did. So what's, what's the answer? Is he... Is he the king of the night or is he a king of the night? Or is is there any difference here? And am I just being a totally pedantic person now?
0: Are you just being a Stannis about it or is this actually a thing? In previous years, I have seen material from HBO that refers to the character as the knight's king. And in this season, it is now... It, definitively, it has been decided that Night King is indeed proper. I literally just got the email 10 minutes ago checking. Oh, my gosh. Because I knew that, that you were sort of torn up and curious about this. And I, and I wanted to solve this. Uh, yes, the character is the Night King here and forever. That is the official name.
1: This is why it's great knowing you, James, because you're just kind of my my direct pipeline for all of these really important questions. <laughs> James, we've been talking for God knows how many minutes and we haven't addressed the fact that, A, the Hound is alive again, or was always alive, um, and B, Ian McShane was on Game of Thrones for, for a hot, like, half hour.
0: <laughs> if you haven't seen Deadwood, particularly the first season, I mean, Ian McShane is so amazing in that, and the guy can deliver dialogue uh so well and so i was really excited to uh hear that he was going to be in in the show and if you know it would be great to have even more of him but we had some of him we had we had a bit of mcshane uh in here as we reintroduced uh the hound who yeah i mean i guess we always kind of figured he was coming back right i mean didn't we sort of think that that was more likely than not
1: yeah i mean like I think it's a general rule for any TV show that's not The Sopranos is that, like, unless you see the character dead, like, you know, you see the little trickle of blood fall away from their mouth, or in Game of Thrones' case, you see their head, you know, deployed off of their body, it's usually a good bet that they're going to come back. And, I mean, we can talk about this a little bit, Uh, you know, book readers have sort of gotten a sense that he was still alive, uh, you know, because of the way that, like, the story is told in the book. There's a chapter where a character who doesn't know the Hound, sees someone who is maybe the Hound, and, and, you know, people have kind of pointed to that chapter as evidence that he might still be around. Although, you know, it it plays out very differently in the book, and where we are now in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's not totally clear that the Hound was ever going to make a major reappearance, whereas the way it played out in this week's episode, you sort of got this... It was almost like uh, whenever The Walking Dead does a sort of, like, bottle episode, you know, with Morgan, you know, like... The the kind of thing where you see somebody who's a horrible, violent person, and there's a whole episode about them maybe trying to not be horribly violent, and then the world just totally comes together to make them return to their horrible, violent past, which, uh, given that this is The Hound, we maybe expected that. But what did you think about Ian McShane's role, though, James? I mean, like it's interesting. In a season that also featured Max von Sydow in a sort of small sort of pivotal, but, you know, really a short-lived role. To deploy Ian McShane in this way was, was was interesting, and I think it kind of added a lot to the character.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those characters that if you give it to a really great actor, you know, they can make it pop in, in a way that, that wouldn't have otherwise... And McShane said himself, you know, in a sort of, you know self deprecating kind of way, in our interview, you know, I asked him what drew him to the role and that sort of thing. He was, well, you know, they had a two page speech and they needed somebody who could deliver that. And so they got me because, you know, you know they, they know that he could he, he could sort of deliver a monologue like Brother Ray did, does um, to his flock and really sell that uh, in a way that uh, a lesser actor could not have done. You, just to riff off that, your point for a little bit, um, it's uh, even uh, you know less of a use of Tobias Menzies, who uh, who <laughs> has so far played uh, Ed Mertulli in two episodes so far, in which he doesn't say a word. It's almost <laughs> like, oh wait, you're an Outlander now, right? Yeah, you don't get to say anything on our show. You're just gonna you know, stand there with a knife to your throat the entire time, lo- looking like scared and annoyed. <laughs>
1: I have to say as great as it was that uh, you know McShade w- loved the role because they gave him you know just pages and pages of dialogue my theory is he read my favorite line that's ever been in Game of Thrones and that's when he decided to take the part and that line of course is quote I'm a fucking septon what was I supposed to say
0: <laughs> he had so many great lines in 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 this and you know and also you know we shouldn't ignore the the philosophical debate that that's going on there this idea that can you lead a life uh, without violence in such a violent land? And the answer seems to be, no, you can't. (laughs) And you watch that and you're like, you know, if only they would accept at least some basic level of self-defense skills, you know, you know, some, you know, they don't have to be violent. They don't have to be cruel, but they should at least be able to protect themselves and be able to put on a, a little bit of a show of force so three random jerks can't just ride in and kill them all
1: did you happen to catch uh, which particular brotherhood those jerks represented was it, was it a brotherhood without banners
0: from my understanding is they are three rogue members from brotherhood without banners I see. What I think is that it's just three random assholes basically that came upon them and and just decided to kill them and take their stuff.
1: Now it's the part of the show where we give you some exciting Game of Thrones trivia each week on the EW Game of Thrones podcast. We'll we'll read a a trivia question. You can email your answer to gotpodcast at ew.com. We've got great prizes. And each week, we'll randomly select a correct answer and give that person a Game of Thrones prize. The answer to last week's trivia question, uh, where I was asking about who is the last king we've seen on the show who took the throne from his immediate father or his immediate uh, parental figure who also sat on the throne. What a weird way of saying that. The answer to that, of course, was the Mad King Heiress, who we saw in a flashback in last week's episode. This week's question... We just saw the return of the Hound, a.k.a. Sandor Clegane. Now, one thing we know about the Hound is he has, let's just say, some issues with his brother, uh, a.k.a. the Mountain, a.k.a. the Scary Frankenstein of King's Landing. Uh, there's There's a few different fractious sibling relationships we've seen on Game of Thrones. This week's trivia question. Send in three examples of siblings who killed each other or siblings who didn't do anything to stop the murder of their sibling. We're looking for three examples in particular of siblings on Game of Thrones we have seen kill their sibling, could be brother or sister, or who were there in the room and didn't do anything to stop the murder of their sibling. sibling game let's go check in with edmure Tully, brother of the late lady stark how's how's edmure doing down in river
0: red <laughs> uh edmure seems like he's gonna die no matter what i mean it's just it seems like it's just a matter of time that he's just served miserable there but at least he's got, got some food and 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 a bath out of it but um uh i really enjoyed seeing jamie you know Back in armor, you know, in charge, and this sort of you know seasoned and more uh, level-headed Jamie than than in the earlier seasons. Right in this situation, we have Bron back to. And to have them back together, even you know, though Braun clearly would would prefer to be anywhere else but there, and uh, taking charge at at River Run, I mean, it was pretty exciting to see.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I was a big fan of this scene, and one thing I found interesting is that you know, the show now, I think, is really digging into its history in a cool way because. At River Run, which is a setting we haven't seen in a really long time, you had the return of these characters we haven't seen in a long time between the Freys and Edmure Tully and the Blackfish. It feels like, after what Yara Greyjoy might call some bad years, <laughs> we're, we're checking in with these people again and and seeing, you know, where they are, seeing where, seeing how the Riverlands has been affected by the last couple years of war. I just found really exciting. I mean, you know, Jamie I think is a really interesting character to track because. I do think that the show has done some interesting things with his arc. In the books, Jamie, at this point, it feels like a very different character. And on the show, you know, in a lot of ways, it feels as if Jamie is still needing to kind of prove himself. And that's very much what his purpose is at Riverrun. And I did like how... His arrival there was very much him sort of, you know, putting the phrase in line. And in a way, trying to extend an olive branch to the Blackfish. I I thought that whole sequence between him and uh, Brendan Tully was just great. I mean, so well shot, you know, this, this kind of classic standoff. The fact that Jamie, who is just, you know, one of the coolest people in Westeros, still feels low status next to the Blackfish, I found really exciting. What are the Blackfish's, like, strategy options now, though, James? I, you know, he sort of said we'll wait you out for two years but you know that doesn't seem like that's necessarily a good long-term policy as far as security goes
0: yeah and and we suspect that you know we're not gonna be cutting to river run for the next two seasons of game of thrones and they're still like camped outside like waiting for him to come out (laughs) um so so we suspect the siege probably isn't going to happen but at the same time uh yeah i mean they're they're clearly at a total impasse here and uh I love the Blackfish. I loved his scale armor for, for House Tully, and you know he just comes out there for no other purpose to just insult Jamie Lannister, basically, just to kind of look him up and down and 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 make him feel like like terrible. Uh, you know, with all his ar- with all his his men, his eight thousand men, he's, he, he arrives in the scene. And he puts the phrase in line. And he's feeling all good about himself, and then he walks up there. And he just like rips into him. They they have like the the Westeros equivalent of of like a rap battle between them. And uh, and Jamie clearly came out the, the loser in that situation.
1: I was, I was totally thinking about, like, uh, in on the Hamilton uh, soundtrack, there's there's that great thing with, like, like, the cabinet rap battle, like, between Jefferson and Hamilton. And that's kind of what this felt like. It wasn't just two guys who hate each other. It was Jamie trying to really, like, get across this idea of, like, there's ways we can do this without fighting. And then, yeah, the, the Blackfish was not having it at all. <laughs> yeah,
0: and what you're seeing there is you're seeing Jamie trying to go for the option that saves people's lives well, at the same time, he's been basically put back on the side of the, quote, bad guys again because he's trying to help the phrase. So it's this really morally tangled knot that you're watching here, because on one hand, you have this character who we've grown to really like and, and sympathize with Jamie, uh, despite all the horrible things that he's done. Yet he's now back on the side of the uh, you know, red wedding, uh, stabby phrase, and so he's basically on the side of the bad guys again. Yet at the same time, he's advocating for a humane ending to this standoff. Uh, so, so the whole thing is just like how kind of, you know morally and ethically tangled and delicious that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it felt to me, you know, so interesting that in the same episode. Where you had the hound really trying to turn over a new leaf and the world just turning that leaf right back on him. Here's Jamie who is just trying so hard to opt for a peaceful option. And A, the blackfish refuses, and specifically B mentions, How can I trust you? You're an oath breaker and a kingslayer, which just, you know, is so recalls the fact that no matter how much Jamie tries to change, the world around him refuses to see him in any other light, which I found really interesting. Um, you mentioned the stabby phrase, James, which reminds me that we should just briefly shift to the Aria storyline. She got stabbed so many times, exactly the way that, that Talissa was stabbed back in the Red Wedding. You sort of made this connection in your recap. And I was just like, I mean, is this it? This would be even, like, crazier than Ned Stark. This would be the craziest death for a character if this is how she... Obviously, that is not that, that is not what's going to happen, but that was so violent and so unexpected out of nowhere that it was it, it was quite shocking.
0: Yeah, I suspect more than a few people probably screamed or yelled out on their couch when that happened, because it the way the scene was shot, it was just as you were starting to become suspicious of this old woman. It's it's like, you know, right as that thought is even forming, all of a sudden she's being horrifically stabbed in the abdomen. It's just uh, you have this feeling of, oh, my God, this really could be it for Arya. And then next, thing you know, she, she's over the side in the water. And I just love, love, love the final shot where she's walking through the streets and she's looking at every face. A, she's looking for somebody who could help her, but B, she's like terrified that one of these faces is about to be the waif and is about to rush at her and finish her off.
1: Yeah, like why was she even outside? I mean, I understand that she had to booked passage with the Westeros guy, but like the the people attacking you could be anybody. Like Arya, you know, go hide on a rooftop or something like that. Um, I'm hopeful that th- that this means she's going to find some kind of respite with my new favorite characters, the actors who play her family. Family and the Lannister family, because I, I can't imagine anyone else in the in the, in the city is going to show a uh, you know stumbling, bloody, orphan much love. While we are over on on the Essos continent, should we just talk briefly about your favorite characters, the Greyjoys?
0: <laughs> I love the scene with the Greyjoys. Um, I thought uh, you know Theon. Uh, has had such a rough road. And to sort of see him in this environment, which is, by the way, I think the happiest brothel that we have potentially seen on this show. I mean, with Littlefinger, it was always this sort of Grim, exploitative sort of figure. There's like all this human trafficking going on. You know, this is like the the happy brothel tavern, uh, and uh, and you have Yara joy, enjoying it more than pre, more than I think any character that we've seen since, since uh, Tyrion back in season one.
1: I was getting a real vibe of uh, when we first met Tyrion uh, in the brothel up in Winterfell. It's interesting that the show has made Yara into a, a lesbian or at least a, a, a bisexual someone who's who's into lots of things but apparently as of this episode perhaps a a lesbian whereas in the books again like i'm not sure she ever announces her specific orientation but she is very much kind of in some kind of relationship with one of her male subordinates so kind of interesting that the show has you know remade that character in in some ways george R. r
0: martin on on his blog uh somebody once asked him if yara was lesbian or bisexual and i martin's reply was something like no, she's not, unless there's there's something I missed or something like, like, like that. So, so yeah, this is a definite change from the books to the show. And, of course, in, in the book, she, she also has a different name as well.
1: You were so reminded of the fact that she is Theon's sister because she was almost acting in that bordello the way that Theon used to act in a bordello, you know, this sort of, like, randy, aristocratic, good times person who, you know, is in charge of people and wants them to have fun and she wants to have fun. And it was so great because, of course, she's acting this way, Almost kind of acting like old Theon, smash cut to new Theon, this very sad eunuch who refuses to even drink. You know, so much of this season, I think, as we've discussed, is these characters who maybe have lost their way trying to find themselves again. And Arya is sort of the best example of this. This person who has just so completely, you know, tried so many different things and tried to fit into the mold of the faceless man and now seems to be really rediscovering her humanity. And I loved how this scene was kind of that for Theon, where you did just kind of have Yara trying to... Essentially, tell him to choose. You know, are you going to be this sort of dead, sad waxwork imitation of the old Theon, or can you be yourself again?
0: Yeah, well, we also in that scene got the hint of what their plan is that they're going to go to Marine and try to team up with Daenerys, uh, which is definitely exciting. I just love the prospect of potentially. Uh, Theon, Varies and uh, Grey Worm like all like combining together to form a Unix supergroup, and they just like go off drinking together and they like talk about peeing sitting down or whatever they talk about and just like you know all, all their various struggles along the way
1: <laughs> oh my god that's another spinoff that I really badly want now it's just yeah those those three guys are sort of like, like hanging out I mean I, I do honestly believe and I, I think I've said this before that you know with Game of Thrones, I, I do think we're, we're heading towards an ending that's kind of like the ending of The Wire, this sort of sense that the names might have changed, but, but, but the types of people who are in this world are the same. And I have always thought that with Theon, yeah, like what he could learn from the spider, the spider who is just this character who does not even consider himself disabled in any way. He is, in fact, more powerful than most of the people who are around him. I just I, I've been so excited about that meeting for a long time, and I'm excited about them kind of ultimately arriving there i mean it it does sort of seem like you know thinking about this in the grand scope for the season we've got a lot of dothraki coming towards marine from one direction we've got a lot of ships going there from another direction i'm sure that'll go perfectly well right james there's no chance that'll possibly go wrong (laughs) you know that's going to be another lannister and and tyrell's versus sparrow situation where it all goes totally according to plan
0: Well, speaking of the Sparrow and the Tyrells, we need to jump over to King's Landing and talk about that. Because you had basically these three meeting scenes in King's Landing that uh, led to Lady Elena uh, deciding to get the hell out of there before the High Sparrow came after her next, it just seems like the High Sparrow is just like systematically eliminating threat after threat after threat. I mean, uh, whether it's Jamie Lannister uh, one week, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, plotting this uh, trial for Cersei, putting Sir Loris in, in, in jail. You know, now it's uh, now it's the Queen of Thorns' turn. You know, it's uh, let's let, let's get her off the board.
1: Yeah, and we sort of knew that there was no way that Marjorie had fully drank the Kool-Aid on the High Sparrow's religious doctrine. And I liked how, you know, she's in there studying and, you know, she is just so completely absorbed this new role as a very religious person, telling the High Sparrow everything that he wants to hear. And I liked how in that scene, the High Sparrow who up until now ha- has been able to hold the moral high ground to a certain extent. I mean, I, you know, James, I, I agree with, with a lot of what he's saying about, you know, the rich and the great houses shouldn't be in charge of Westeros and, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to sin no matter who you are. First of all, in that scene, he gets his horrible line to Marjorie about how Marjorie, it's not important that a woman want to have sex with someone. What's important is that you start, you know, cranking out those babies, which, you know, immediately you're kind of like, oh, all right, Sparrow, you, you, you may have seeded the high ground on this a little bit. But yeah then you know that that fantastic sequence between Marjorie and the Queen of Thorns with Septa Unella just sort of hovering over behind them looking very self-righteous you know I loved how in that sequence there's so much going on there's Marjorie saying things because she knows that whatever she says Septa Unella will take back to the High Sparrow there's the Queen of Thorns first trying so hard to save her granddaughter and then really, without being able to show it, being being so proud of her. You know, th- there is this aspect to Marjorie where she is really up to the game on subversion and espionage because while everyone else in the capital is trying to attack the High Sparrow in a very open way, the fact that Marjorie is so clearly working from within, that felt like that was a, a real moment of power for her, entirely draped in her pretending to be fully at the High Sparrow's beck and call. Uh, you know, like, I, I think after... The Queen of Thorns left, didn't she turn to Unella and say something like, should we pray now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, she's playing it to the hilt. And uh, I love that no matter what card she's dealt, you know, in terms of social game, she can play that. And uh, so if she's going to do this, she like commits to it fully and does everything she can to convince him that, uh, that she's completely and fully on board. And You know, it's interesting because there's this, like, temptation there. You know, she could just, like, take off. Uh, with her grandmother, but she doesn't want to leave because presumably because she she doesn't want to leave Sir Loras because the moment she leaves, you know Sir Loras's life is definitely forfeit. I think she thinks that the only way of potentially saving him still is working the system for, from the inside.
1: I think you're right. I do also think that Marjorie is just so much better at playing the long game of Thrones. And what what I liked was that right after that scene between the Queen of Thorns and Marjorie, you had another scene between the Queen of Thorns and Cersei, and to a certain extent Cersei and Marjorie they're so similar in a lot of ways but they do represent two very different strategic takes on how do we proceed towards me and my family getting power and the fact that Cersei was the one who, thinking very short-term, was like, I'm going to support the High Sparrow, and I'm going to overturn the natural order, and I'll just assume that in the long run that'll turn out well for me. Obviously it hasn't. Marjorie, who was not on board with the High Sparrow at all, she now seems to understand, okay, this is not something that can be crushed easily. This is something that we need to really start working with. Because you almost thought in a way... You know, oh, Cersei is coming to the Queen of Thorns. Maybe she will reveal the fact that Marjorie is still sort of, you know, on the side of the Tyrell Lannister coalition. And I-, I loved how the Queen of Thorns didn't mention that and was also just kind of very blunt with Cersei. Like it was so ironic, Cersei who first brought up the idea of the Game of Thrones in season one. I loved how the Queen of Thorns was just kind of like, "No, you- you've lost, Cersei. There's you. You may have tried your best." you were certainly a, a lot better at this than Ned Stark was, but you've lost and it's entirely your fault.
0: <laughs> what was, to me, even more remarkable about that was that Cersei admitted she lost. I mean, she admitted, well, not that she lost, but but, th- but that she screwed up and that it was her fault and she's asking to work together. This is so un-Cersei-like. It seems like she now has the self-awareness that she was lacking throughout the entire rest of the series and now it's Maybe too late.
1: What I loved was that no matter how much Cersei tried to apologize, the Queen of Thorns went even deeper. I mean, her speech was great. It reminded me so much of in Billy Madison, when the principal gives that hilarious Uh, negative critique of Billy's speech. Like, I wonder if you're the worst person I've ever met. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. I award you no points, Cersei. I just, I I loved it. I mean, Diana Rigg, James, we don't talk about her enough. This is a person who was, like, the coolest, like, you know, ultimate sex pot of the 1960s on The Avengers, and she is now one of the best parts of Game of Thrones almost half a century later. I mean, she earns all the points for this episode, I think. <laughs> On that note, James, it's time to shift to our favorite part of the show, Dark Wings, Dark Words. <coughs> That's right, we're cracking open the EW mailbag. You can always send in emails to gotpodcast at ew.com. First question came uh, coming to us from Twitter last night, from atsenorita76. Will Clegane Bowl happen Or is it too predictable for GOT? Now Clagane Bowl, as I learned last night from Googling Clagane Bowl, uh, it's sort of this idea that a lot of fans have had that we are, Heading towards a matchup between Sandor and Gregor Clegane, who have both seemingly died, or almost died, or actually died, and are now back to life, or in the mountains' case, horrible unlife. On the show, uh, what do you think, James? Is that a long-term matchup that we can look forward to?
0: So that would mean that the Hound would agree to fight for the High Sparrow, though, correct?
1: Well, that's one idea, is that, you know, that we're heading towards the duel uh, for Cersei's honor and that that would be the battle, which that seems sort of unlikely to me just because that seems geographically unlikely given the few episodes that we have left. I was kind of wondering if, you know part of this theory was that just in the long term of the show, that is a battle that might happen. I guess to me, the interesting part of that question is the too predictable thing, because this is, of course, a show based on books that sort of goes against whatever is predictable at any uh, possible opportunity.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm torn on that for for that very reason, because I, I think the, um, the the question's well phrased in, by asking, is that too predictable? Because that, that's a smart question to ask whenever something seems like, The obvious thing that's coming, the show tends to go a different direction. On the other hand, there's so much history there between those two characters since the Hound is back and the Mountain has also defied death as well that you have to think that at some point there's gonna be some sort of confrontation there. But as far as a geographical distance, I, I don't think that's an issue at all. I mean, Jamie went from from the Red Keep to River Run in like one episode. So, you know, I, I think that the, that the Hound could, could show up in like Marine, like in the next episode and, and it, it would be fine.
1: Here's another one from Twitter from at Frolicious, excellent name Frolicious. Are we ever going to hear about Dorne again?
0: <laughs> well, it's amazing because we had a Dorne scene at the like near the very beginning of the first episode of the season and then haven't been back there at all since. Uh which is so interesting. And uh, my vote is absolutely. I mean, you don't just end that and then have nothing. I mean, that's not the end of Dorne. I mean, it just it just wouldn't make narrative sense. So, yes. I, my my firm prediction is yes, it's just a matter of when. I would assume we'd check in again before the end of the season.
1: I was kind of assuming that we were going to get a moment similar to, I believe it was the end of season three, when literally in the finale, we had a quick check-in with the Greyjoys that was essentially just sort of a teaser for the following season. I, my expectation, which is sort of a little bit based on the books, but more just kind of based on, on how the show is telling its story, is... At a moment when things seem somewhat settled, someone will just sort of turn and see on the horizon a big army. And at the head of that army is going to be the Sand Snakes. I I have no idea of where that would be exactly, but I I sort of assume that that's how the story is going to be told. Because also, one thing we're seeing this season that I appreciate so much is, you know, it, it is possible to bring back characters who've been gone for a while And almost by virtue of the fact that they've been gone for so long, they become much more interesting. You know, the Blackfish who was always a fun character, but he was really kind of more in the background. Just now, seeing him again and just imagining what's been happening to him and what has happened to the world around him, there's so much more texture and context. And I, I think perhaps, this is a roundabout way of saying that maybe the Sand Snakes will be more fun once they've had some time to sort of sit out the show's drama for a while and you know perhaps reconsider what their approach is going to be to this whole Game of Thrones situation.
0: <laughs> we still have two of the Sand Snakes in in Westeros because they killed... Prince Tristan, and they're just um, you know, well, either they went back home, or they're just kind of hiding out in Westeros somewhere. Ready to pop up.
1: And that wraps it up for us theorizing about where the Sand Snakes are. Uh, Hopefully we'll never have to do that ever again. Uh, James, that wraps it up for us this week. Uh, Quick reminder that everybody who has any questions or comments or concerns or theories email us at gotpodcast at ew.com Uh, You can find us on Twitter at James Hibbard, at Darren Franich. Come back next week for more exciting Game of Thrones thoughts. I've been Darren Franich, and he's been James Hibbard.